G'day, I'm Janet, and uh, we're going to be reading from 1 Timothy 4. We've been going through all of 1 Timothy the last few weeks, and I know my growth group have found that uh, really great, actually, in um, living in the mess and being part of a family. So we're going to read all of Timothy, 1 Timothy 4. It's on page 961, or it'll be on the screen behind me. The Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical lies whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. That is why we labour and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the saviour of all people and especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the, for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is the word of the Lord. Awesome. Uh, if you have your Bibles, keep them open, although it's going to be uh, on the screen as we work through this passage. Let's pray together and then we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for all that you have reminded us of this morning already. God, we pray that now as we uh, look at your word, uh, we pray that you would comfort us, that you would challenge us, that you would change us. We pray that you would speak to us, Lord. We pray that uh, just for the next little bit, that however we've kind of come here today, with whatever baggage or weeks that we've had, that we'd be able to sit and hear your word and be changed by it. Give us this strength. Give us this grace. We pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is it uh, that motivates you? What is it that pushes you to be the person that you need to be? For me, I remember growing up as a kid, uh, when I was about nine, at our library at the school we went to, they used to have these motivational posters, right? So they'd have the posters of the sunsets and of the cars with, you know, some cheesy line underneath it. And the one that always spoke to me was the picture of the Ferrari. Now, if you know me, that's a bit weird because I don't like cars, right? So maybe this was me trying to impress my friends uh, that did like cars or to prove my masculinity in some sort of sense. But the Ferrari one spoke to me and it spoke to me, the, the line underneath it was something like, live life in the fast lane. 
right? So, so I was motivated. I was pushed by that. Now, you could buy these posters uh, for $2 from the library, but that was too steep for me. So I didn't get one of these posters. But every time we'd go into the library, I'd find some excuse to look at these posters and be motivated. Now, what I've learned uh, in the last few months especially is that $2 to be motivated is a bargain, right? Uh, so if you've been following um, the state of origin hype, particularly Kevy Walters, uh, the coach of Queensland hired a motivator, right? He hired a motivator and this motivator who was, you know, he was a coach, he was a mentor, he calls himself a motivator or the coach whisperer is what he calls himself. He costs $6,500 an hour, right? That's how much it costs to use this guy. Now, here's a picture of him. His name's Bradley Stubbs, uh, I think, and he looks like an absolute seed. But you can see what he says in this tweet. Look, uh, belief creates miracles, right? That's his motivation. Belief creates, he says it three times, and then he always finishes, so he calls himself the coach whisperer, then always finishes with this line, expect to win, done, done, done. Right now, weird, right, to finish like that. Uh, not just on his tweets, but on his website, you see this as well. Expect to win, done, done, done. Now, maybe you're a skeptic, but if you watched on Wednesday night, Queensland ran out the most motivated team in the history of the origin, right? They were pumped, they were motivated, and they won. This guy clearly works. Now, you know, still, you might be skeptical, but as I was, but jumped online. The strangest thing about this is that lots of coaches have actually used this guy. So if you're into sport, if you're interested, so Trent Robinson, the Roosters won last year, he uses him. Uh, Graham Arnold for Sydney in soccer, he uses him. Lots of coaches use him, uh, but, but still, uh, you're allowed to be skeptical. And, and not only that, $6,500 is a lot an hour to pay to be motivated, especially if you could have just paid $2 and put the poster on the wall, right? You could have saved a lot of money and still been motivated. Now, as you look at this guy and my experience as a kid, um, what I kind of see, right, these things might motivate you, but when we're thinking about what God calls us to be, right, as God's people in this world, there's actually a recognition that this type of motivation to simply believe in yourself or simply grasp some sort of line is not enough, right? So when we think about our uh, din, right, in Vietnam, motivation from this guy isn't going to be enough. When we think about what God calls us to be in our community, a, a line that says, get in the fast lanes, not going to be enough. So when we think about what God calls us to be, when we think about us living in the mess, right, which is what we've looked at, us being the church with baggage and issues as we come together where our whole world thinks that what we're doing is a waste of time, what is it that pushes us to keep going? What is it that, that drives us to be the people that God wants us to be? What is it that motivates us? Well, what we're going to see as we get into our Bible today in chapter 4 is that Paul kind of speaks into this space, right? It's almost like we're in the middle of 1 Timothy, and it's almost like he just stops for a moment giving instructions to the church and just goes, okay, remember why you do what you do. And so what motivates us? Well, we pick it up in chapter 4, verse 1. This is what he says. The Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. 
For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. So what motivates us? What drives us to be the people that God has called us to be? Well, the first thing, I mean, we're going to see three in this passage, three things that move us, that drive us. The first is knowing who we are. The first thing that motivates us is not a focus on what we do, but it's a focus on who we are. And we see this in how Paul addresses the false teachers in this church, right? So he goes hard at the false teachers who have a focus on what they do, right? Their focus is essentially at the heart of it. If you do enough stuff, right, you can be accepted and approved by God. Right? That's essentially their message, that the acceptance and approval by the God of the universe, it's in your hands. Your performance dictates what God thinks about you. Now, for this church, it played out through things like marriage and uh, food. They said, you know, don't get married and don't eat certain foods. But, but we've kind of seen this play out through history, haven't we, in different ways. So, you know, if you've been at church for a little while, uh, when the TV came out, don't watch the TV. When the internet came out, don't use the internet. For, for some people, it's don't eat certain foods. For some people, it's alcohol. Don't drink certain things. For others, it's just kind of way broader than that. And it's like the whole world is evil. So don't go into that. Let's create our own little community. And, and we're not going to send our kids to school because that's evil. We'll homeschool them. We'll look after them. We'll avoid everything. Right? Now, this plays out. The motivation for these things is to get God. Right? The idea is that your performance means God will approve you or accept you, right? That's the motivation to do these things. That, that's what makes these things a false teaching. So it's either actively through saying, don't do this, right? And if you don't do this, you can get God, or if you do, you can't, or it comes through more subtle ways, right? Which, which maybe we're more familiar, the subtle, like guilt-driven, judgmental, more like, oh, you're actually drinking that, are you? Or you're doing that, are you? Right, It plays out through those kind of ways. And the motivation to this type of teaching is if you do the right stuff, you'll get God. Now, as you hear teaching like that, what's your reaction? Right, what thoughts do you have to teaching that kind of is in this ballpark? What's your feelings towards this? Because my gut is that our feelings towards this teaching are nowhere near as what Paul feels about it. Right, It's nowhere near as strong as how Paul goes hard at this. We might feel certain ways, but Paul, like, he smashes it, right? Did you see his words there? He said, okay, these people, God the Spirit clearly says that these guys have abandoned the faith. He says they're following deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. He says this teaching comes through hypocritical liars whose consciences are seared where even if they wanted to do the right thing, they couldn't. That's pretty harsh from Paul. Right? Like, how hard does he go on this teaching? Did any of us go that hard on the teaching, right, on this idea? So the question is, why does Paul go so hard on this type of teaching? Right? Why does he slam this idea and these people? Why does he say of this teaching, it's a demonic lie? Right? That's what he's saying. Well, as we understand 1 Timothy, and, and actually broader than that, the, the Bible, what we see is it's for a number of reasons, but one major reason uh, and, and we kind of see that for a number of reasons and one main reason. So to name a few, the, the first reason I think he slams this is because this type of teaching is just tiring. Right? It's exhausting having to prove yourself. Another reason he goes hard at this is because it's burdensome. Right? It's a weight that's kind of too heavy to bear. This, this teaching will crush you. Another reason is because it takes away from the joy that God has intended for our good. 
right? So he says there in this passage, he's like, man, God actually made marriage. God made food to be enjoyed. Another reason he goes hard at this is simply because if we think about it, it's just pointless. This idea that your performance can get you God, it's, it's futile, right? Because if my performance gets me God, then the reality is I actually know me. And I know that even at my peak performance, I still have flaws. I still have faults. Like at my best, I, I'm still selfish and I still hurt people. And so I'm constantly going to be moving in this position where God views me as great and then bad and then great. It's going to be this, it just doesn't actually make sense. But I think the biggest reason Paul goes hard at this is because of what we saw the, the previous verses in chapter 3. The, the biggest reason Paul goes hard on this is because this type of teaching takes away from Jesus and it puts the focus on us. Right? This idea, it takes away from Jesus, it puts the focus on us. It takes away from all that Jesus has done. It takes away from the beauty of the cross and it moves that and it says, actually, you can be good enough. Right? You can do this. Your performance, it, it's going to be what wins your approval from God. And, and Paul says this is a demonic lie. A demonic lie. See, demons want us to lose sight of Jesus. Right? They hate when Jesus is celebrated and lifted up. And so they'll do whatever they can to shift the focus. And this teaching does just that. It takes off the fact that we have a God. Right? Christ Jesus came to save sinners of whom I'm the worst. I don't need a Savior if I can do it takes away from what we saw in chapter 2. We have one God and one mediator between God and mankind. The man Christ Jesus who was the ransom. I don't need a mediator nor a ransom if I can actually be good enough. It takes away from the beauty found in the cross that says approval and acceptance isn't earned. It's freely given. This type of teaching, it moves the focus. It shifts it from Jesus and it puts it square on us. And it says, you can be good enough. Your performance, just work harder and you can get God's approval. And Paul looks at that teaching and says, man, that is a demonic lie. That lie comes through hypocritical teachers whose conscience is associated. They couldn't even do what was right, even if they wanted. This is a lie. And so we need to see the truth. We need to believe the truth the truth of the gospel that says your approval and your acceptance, it's not earned. It's not grounded in your performance. It's grounded in what Jesus has done at the cross. It's grounded in who we are, right? When we grasp that, it's grounded in who we are. Now, this has some profound implications, right? Like if, if you've come here today and you don't feel good enough, right? Like maybe there's a sense in which you actually just don't feel like you are good enough. You don't feel lovable. Maybe it's from hurt. Maybe it's from past experiences. But your experiences, you think about how good you are, you actually just don't feel good enough. You've been told you are not lovable. If that's you here today, don't believe the lie that says God's picture of you is based on your performance. See the beauty of the gospel that says actually it's given freely that God loves you, that he's for you, and that that's grounded in what Jesus has done at the cross. But then there's the flip side, right? For some of us, we feel great. We feel really lovable, right? For some of us, we had great weeks. We, you know, read the Bible this week, and we prayed heaps this week, and we even spoke about Jesus this week, and when our team lost state of origin, we didn't even swear, and so God loves me. But, but we have to not believe the lie, 
that says God looks down on you better or worse because of what you do, because of your performance. See, the truth of the gospel that says, no, God's approval and acceptance is freely given. It's not earned. So when we think about motivation, right, what drives us, it begins not with what we do. It begins with who we are, right? As we sung, I am a child of God. I am what God says I am. It begins with who I am. It begins with who we are. Right? So that's the first thing that pushes us, that drives us. The first motivation, it starts with who we are. It doesn't start with false teaching that looks at actions. No, it starts with who we are. What's the second thing that motivates us? Well, we see it as we keep moving through this passage. Verse 6, he says, If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you'll be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. That is why we labor and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, and especially of those who believe. So the first thing that motivates us, that drives us, is who we are. The second is that we grasp what our role, uh, what the role we have to play is. Right? So the second thing that moves us, that pushes us, is when we understand our role. Now, when we think about actions and works, we, we looked at this a few weeks ago. There's two equal and opposite errors. The first error is overemphasizing actions, right? That that's all that matters. Paul looks at that and says, demonic lie. He deals with that. The second error is when we go, okay, so since I'm accepted, since I have approval from the God of the universe, then I don't have to do anything. But Paul addresses that as well. He speaks into that space and he says, grasp the role that you have to play. Now, in many ways, this is, again, like kind of sport, particularly when kids play sport, right? So I know for many of us, we have kids who are just entering uh, sport for the first time, right? And it's an exciting time when our, you know, kids join up to a team. It's exciting for them. It's memorable. Uh, it's, you know, kind of nervous as well. In fact, I, I still remember my first time, my first game playing uh, soccer, 23 years ago, I was, I was fanging to play soccer my whole life. I was the youngest of four boys. And so really longed to play soccer. And then the first game we had, I was goalkeeper and just cried the whole time. There was dust in the heaps of dust around. And no, I was just nervous and packing it. And still remember for some reason we won 4-0, which is maybe they should have cried. Maybe we made them cry. I don't know. But it's weird that I remember that, uh, but it is memorable, right? Playing sport as a kid and uh, for kids entering into sport for the first time. But when uh, you sign up, so particularly, let's think soccer for a moment. When a like five-year-old signs up to under five soccer, it's, it's kind of innocent, right? So it's not performance-based. You know, you just sign up and you're on the team and you get given a jersey and it's great, but then it's the coach's job to motivate the under fives team to know how to play, right? So if Kevy Walters thought that motivating Queensland was hard, he should try teaching kids how to play soccer because that is a unique thing, right? Coaches of under fives have to motivate their kids. Some of those kids want to play, some don't. Some parents want them to play, some don't, right? So you've got these kids here and, and part of the coach's job is to help them see that they have a role to play on the team, Right? The coach says, you know, you're valued, you're needed here, and then they help them see how to play. Right? So it begins with just chase after the ball. And if you've ever seen under five soccer, they all just run after the ball. 
And then it begins with, okay, don't just run after the ball, right? Defend and attack and don't use your hands. But if you're goalkeeper, you can use your hands. And so the coach's job is to motivate, right, by showing them the role they have and what it looks like to actually play. Now, that's kind of what we get going on in the next kind of few verses from six to four, uh, from verse 6 to verse 14. We kind of get that, right? Paul, he wants them to see who they are. He wants us to see who we are. But then he wants us to see the role we have to play. And like a coach, he's going to point out to us what that role looks like. Right? So the thing that pushes us and motivates, it's like you're on the team. You have a role to play. And this is what it looks like. And so what does it look like? Well, he gives us five things in these next verses. And number one begins in verse six. What it means to be on the team is that we are nourished on the truths of the faith. Right? We see it there towards the end of verse six. We are nourished on the truths of the faith. Literally, the idea here is eat the truth. Right? It's, it's kind of weird language, but it, that's the idea, eat the truth. And what he's speaking about here, he's getting uh, at a physical thing we know to speak about a spiritual reality. Right? So we know food, right? We know what it is to get to the end of the day and be nourished. We know the saying, you are what you eat, right? That if you eat good food, you feel good. And if you eat bad food, then you feel bad. This was illustrated most uh, by Super Size Me, that documentary. Do you remember that from ages ago now where the guy just ate Maccas for 30 days straight and literally by the end of it was going to die if he kept doing that? You are what you eat. Now, Paul is touching, he's speaking into that space, and he's, he's kind of saying, look, you are what you eat, but you also become what you think about. You become what you think about. So he says, be nourished, eat the truth. Be nourished on the truth. So don't just spend your life eating or being nourished on what's false or on just what's given to you. Instead, work hard to eat or be nourished on the truth, the truth of the Bible the truth that we find in God's Word, right? So the first thing it means for us as we pull this jersey on, as we go out to play, is that we're nourished on the truth. So it's not just pastors who need to read and, you know, listen to podcasts and read books, right? It's all of us. We're all called to do that. So the first challenge is, are you nourished on the truth? Do you make time and space in your life to eat the truth, to, to soak in and be fed on what God's Word actually says? Or do we find ourselves being nourished on every other voice? Right? See, either we're nourished on truth or we're nourished on everything else. Right? We have so many voices that are given to us in our lives. We have to figure out what are we going to be nourished on? What are we going to actively go after? What are we going to eat intellectually? Either we're nourished on truth or we're nourished on everything else. So the first thing it means is that we're nourished on truth. We eat the truth. Second thing. What's the second? Well, the second thing is in verse 7 and 8. We are training. Like a kid who trains in under fives, if they miss training, it's not like they're off the team. The performance didn't get them on the team. But it is a part of being on the team. You train. And Paul says here, physical training is of some value, but godliness, training in godliness is of value every way. So we all know here today that exercise is good for us. We might not like it, but we know it. Uh, I found an article this week that actually kind of really showed how good physical training was of, uh, uh, sorry, how valuable it was to us. And so just thought I'd highlight some of the things uh, that it's good for us. So uh, we've got this article here. Uh, what we see is physically, here's what exercise does. It can reduce the risk of illness like heart and lung disease, high blood pressure, diabetes, obesity, cancer, dementia, Alzheimer's disease, and Parkinson's disease. 
So pretty much exercise helps reduce every disease there is, and it also helps people recover from a stroke and many other illnesses, right? Okay, pretty valuable physically. Mentally, though, if you exercise regularly, it can reduce your stress and symptoms of mental health conditions like depression and anxiety and help with recovery from mental health issues. So it's good mentally. Exercise also improves your sleep, which is good news for all of us, right? It's, so it's good for us mentally. But then this is what I found interesting because kind of, you know, I feel like we know that stuff, but then it helps your brain. So it says exercise pumps blood to the brain, which should help you think more clearly. So if you're someone who doesn't think clearly, go for a walk, right? Because that will help you. And then also this, it increases the size of the hippocampus, which is a weird name for something, but it's the part of the brain responsible for memory. So exercise helps your memory. So it's good for you physically and mentally and for your brain function. Now, what we see in this passage is Paul goes, yes, it is, right? Exercise, training physically is good for you, but he says there's something better. There's something better than something that will help prevent every known disease, physically, mentally, and your brain capacity. And so what is it? It says training in godliness. Where we are exercising, where we are intentionally exercising to become more like Jesus. And why is it more valuable? It's more valuable because it holds value here and now in this life and in the life to come. So the second thing it means for us to pull the jersey on, to be on the team, to have the role to play is that we are training in godliness. So are you training in godliness? And, and more than that, what does it look like to train in godliness? Well, again, I think this is where exercise helps uh, to think through. So there's some exercise that we do that's not training. Okay, so there's unintentional exercise. This is the type of exercise you do if you go to Garden City. And you've got to go to Maya, but then you also, have a, you, know, you also want to play at strike bowling with your friends. And so that's the other end. Now, if you do that walk, right, and you stop in at the shops along the way, you walk for about half an hour, maybe, depending how much you stop. That's unintentional exercise, right? It's good for you. How good? We can walk and shop, right? Amazing but it's not training, okay? It's just unintentional exercise. There's another type of exercise that's also not training. It's what I'm doing at the moment. It's intentional, but it's infrequent, right? So at the moment, uh, I'm trying to run. I'm trying to get back into running, but it's just not happening as much as I want it to be. And so I'm running about once a week. And running once a week is about as bad as it gets because you just don't get any better, Every time it hurts, and every time you're not going far, and by the end of it, you look at your watch and go, man, I did that quick, and it's slower. Um, okay, well, I'll go again next week. That's, all, that's not training, right? That's intentional, but it's infrequent exercise. Training implies that you're getting better, right? Now, this is helpful when we think about godliness. So when we think about training in godliness, it's not unintentional, Right? So we'll have moments in our lives where we are unintentionally able to practice godliness. So this is like, you know, when we have friends over or whatever and we just happen to speak about Jesus. That's great. We're encouraged to do that, but that's not training. That's just practicing godliness. There's also that time where we, we're intentional, but it's infrequent. You know, so the time we go, okay, tomorrow I'm going to read my Bible. We wake up, we read, we pray. It's great for us, but then it doesn't happen again for a little while. Right now, that's awesome that we can open up God's Word, but it's not training. Training in godliness 
is intentional and it's consistent. It's intentional and consistent exercise to become more like Jesus. So what does this training look like? Well, training in godliness might be where we go, okay, I want to read the Bible and I want to pray every day or every two days. And when we're consistent with that, that's, that's what training is. Training might be where we go, okay, I want to, I want to be at growth group. And, and not once every few months, but every week, consistent, intentional, right? It's the same with church. It's consistent and it, it's intentional. Training is where we might say something like, you know, even in, in the church setting, right? Um, that uh, when I come to church, I'm going to be intentional in speaking to new people. So I'm going to try and talk to two new people every Sunday. Right now, if it happens once, awesome. That's practicing godliness. But if we do it consistently, it's training in godliness, Training in godliness might be missionally, right? We go, okay, this week I'm going to have one conversation about Jesus, right? And whoever gets stuck with me on Friday lunchtime, that's who's going down because I have to do it this week, right? That's training. You see, see the difference? It's helpful to think about this, that it's not just practicing godliness. It's actually intentional exercise. It's intentional and it's consistent exercise to become more like Jesus. And, and Paul says this is what it looks like. Right? You have a role to play, you're on the team, and part of that means you are training. So number one, be nourished on the truth. Number two, train in godliness. What's number three? We see it in verse 10. And it's those two words there that he begins with, labor and strive. The third thing that it means for us to be on the team is that we labor and strive. Literally, the idea of strive is suffer. So the concept here is we work so hard, it hurts. We work so hard it hurts. And what are we working for? Well, we're working for gospel ends, right? You see this. He says, we labor and strive because we've put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people and especially those who believe. Now, again, that wording there is weird, okay? It feels a bit strange. It sounds like that God saves everyone and then especially those who believe is, you know, kind of they get a special spot. But we've been on this journey, haven't we, in 1 Timothy? We let the Bible explain the Bible. And what we see throughout the whole Bible is that it's only those who trust in Jesus who are saved. So I, I kind of understand this like John 3.16. God loved the world so much, but it's only those who believe in the Son who are saved. Right? God is the Savior of all people, but it's only those who believe. And so he says, since we grasp this reality, we labor and strive. We work so hard it hurts. Now, of course, the challenge first and foremost is for Timothy as the pastor of the church, labor and strive. The challenge next is for the pastors of this church, right? We want to feel that challenge and call that, that for myself and Ross and Ryan, that the call on us is to work so hard it hurts, that we are not getting into this as a cruisy job, but that we labor and strive for gospel ends, right? And, and I hope that you can see that in us. We want to work so hard that it hurts for these gospel ends, but then this principle flows down for all of us that we all are called to labor and strive for the gospel. So what does this look like when we don't work full-time for church? What does this look like for us to labor and strive? Well, I think one of the key questions in this, the key maybe diagnostic in this, is to ask this question. Am I laboring and striving everywhere else in life that it leaves me no energy to serve Jesus? I think that's one of the key kind of diagnostic questions to ask of ourselves. Am I working so hard elsewhere that it means there's no energy, there's no space to serve Jesus? Now, what this means for all of us is going to be different, right? For 
our mums who have just had new babies. It's going to look different to our mums who go to school and who dads who work full-time and dads who work part-time and those of us who just work and aren't parents and those of us who don't work and those of us who are at uni and those of us who are retired. It's going to look different for all of us. But we do have to ask this question. The call on our lives is to labor and strive for gospel ends, not just for our own ends, not just for our own houses, our own cars, whatever else, right, our own jobs, but for gospel ends. Now, we'd love to help you figure out what that might mean for you in the stage of life. And so a couple of encouragement. Ryan is going to be in the info desk at, uh, after the service. If you want to talk about what it means for you to serve in your season of life, he'd love to chat to you. The other one is growth groups this week. Let's meet and let's wrestle with our seasons of life and what it means for us in our own seasons, for what it means to labor and strive. Because wherever we're at, there is a call for all of us to work so hard it hurts for gospel ends. So that's the third thing. So number one, be nourished on the truth. Number two, train. Number three, labor and strive. What's number four? We see it in verse 11. He says, command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. The fourth thing it means for us to pull a jersey on and to be a part of the team is that we lead by example. Right? So hear what he's saying to Paul. We don't lead by position. We don't lead by age. We don't lead by title. We don't lead by how long we've been here. We lead by example. We chase after Christ and we lead from that chase. Right? I mean, this, is, this goes in line with what we've seen with the elders a few weeks ago. Character is king for them, but character is king for all of us. And so the call is not to lead by the position we've been given or the title we have. The call is to lead by example. Right, to lead in such a way where our life, our love, our conduct, our faith, our purity is of such an example that people can look in and see this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. We lead by example. That's number four. And number five, we see in verse 13 and 14, he pretty much says to Timothy, devote yourself to reading the scripture, to preaching and teaching. Uh, verse 14, do not neglect your gift, which was given to you. The fifth thing it means for us to pull a jersey on is that we are gifted and we have a role to play on the field, right? Like a coach to the under fives, we need you. That's what Paul's saying to Timothy. We need you, right? We need you to do your thing. We need you to exercise your gift. We need you to not neglect your gift, but to use your gift for the building up of the church. So for Timothy, it's keep reading the Bible and keep preaching. Right? So that's why at church we'll keep reading the Bible and we'll keep hearing preaching. We're called to that. We love the Bible. We love teaching. We love preaching. But this call flows down to all of us because all of us have been gifted. And the call is here. God is calling you to saying, don't neglect your gift. Right? So as we stand here this morning, as we sit here, right, there are what? 150 of us gathered here this morning. You're gifted. God has given you a unique skill to bring to the table. And God is calling you, He's inviting you to use that gift here at church, right? To use your ability. For some of us, it's up front. For some of us, as we've seen this morning, it's singing, it's playing music. For some of us, it's tech. For some of us, it's welcoming and hospitality. It's behind the scenes. For some of us, it's kids' church and creche. For some of us, it's praying before the service. Right? There's lots of different ways to use our gifts. The call here is from the God of the universe, use your gifts. Don't neglect the gifts that you've been given. 
because you have been given something. You have unique skills and abilities. Bring them to the table for the, for the glory of God and the good of His church. That's the fifth thing it means. You have a role to play. All right, so number one, eat the truth. Number two, train in godliness. Number three, labor and strive. Number four, lead by example. Number five, use your gifts. And what Paul is doing here is he's pointing out what it means for us to play, right? what it means for us to pull on a jersey. Right? We just signed up. It's not based on our performance, but we do have a role to play. And this, as we grasp our role to play, should move us and motivate us and push us in this direction to be the people God has called us to be, right? So number one, who we are. We get who we are. Number two, we get we have the role to play. But Paul doesn't finish here. He's got one final thing to say for us. And the third thing we see that should motivate, motivate us and push us is from verse uh, 15 to 16, and it's the impact that we can have. When we grasp who we are, when we grasp the role we play, we have an impact in our world. Listen to what Paul says. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. See the gospel impact that Timothy can have if he gives himself wholly to this, if he can go all in on this. Paul says you'll save yourself and your hearers. When we understand who we are and when we understand the role we have to play and when we understand what's on the line, we will give ourselves wholly to this. We have to go all in on this because we grasp that there's spiritual realities here of heaven and hell. He says to Timothy, you can actually save people. You can save yourself and your hearers if you just give yourself to this, if you watch your life and doctrine closely, if you go all in on this. And so when we grasp these spiritual realities, the way it plays out for us is that it moves us and pushes us to be wholehearted and all in. So why is it that we struggle to go all in? Why is it that we struggle to be wholehearted in this? Well, I think it's because when it comes to the spiritual realities, often it's hard to see them. In fact, uh, I heard a, uh, a guy talk a few years ago who was speaking in this space about the difference between physical poverty and spiritual poverty. So physical poverty is confronting. He was talking about his experience in Africa as he was driving along in uh, an area that was just so, um, it was so third world and struck by poverty. And he was driving along and he saw people's homes and he saw people suffering and he saw the sadness. It's confronting when you see physical poverty. That's why World Vision shows us pictures. Because when we see people suffering physically, it's confronting. But what about spiritual poverty? See, spiritual poverty is harder to see. In fact, it's unseen. And when we drive around Australia, what we see is nice homes and nice cars. And we go to Garden City and we see people having a great time hanging out on a Sunday with their friends, going to the shops, buying stuff. But we have to have eyes to see the spiritual poverty. We need to see the reality, the spiritual reality that nice homes and nice cars are often a front to the fact that internally there are spiritual corpses, that people are dead in their sins, and that if they don't hear the message of Jesus, they will face the just wrath of God for what they've done. 
We need to be confronted by the spiritual poverty that people are living in and let it move us so that it breaks our half-hearted attitudes so that we can go all in. And what an example this morning from James with, with someone who's done that. Right, like in, in Vietnam, if you give them a way out, when he's lost when he's lost community, his community, his family, when he's lost three years' wages, when he's lost his home, when he's suffered and facing persecution, if you give him a way out, if he's half-hearted, what's Din doing? He's out. If he's half-hearted, he's leaving that. But he's all in. He's wholehearted. And, and what did he say? Right? He said, if I don't stay, who's going to tell them about Jesus? He gets the spiritual realities that are going on. He sees the spiritual poverty and he knows if he doesn't stay, these people will die in their sins. We need to see the unseen. We need to be confronted by the spiritual realities that are going on. And when we see these spiritual realities, we need to give ourselves wholly to what God has called us, where we are diligent, where we are watching our life and doctrine closely for the sake of ourselves and our hearers. So, so you see what pushes us? You see what moves us and motivates us to keep going? It's not just some guy saying, believe in yourself. It's God saying, you can make a difference. When you get who you are and the role you have to play, you can make a difference where you can watch your life and doctrine closely and save yourself and your hearers. Let's pray. God, there is so much on the line. Father, we can't afford to, to live our lives where we're half-hearted. You've called us to more. You've called us to give ourselves wholly to these things, to go all in on these spiritual realities that we know. God, we do want to celebrate who we are in Christ. We, we do want to celebrate that you give us a jersey and you call us to a role that we have to play on the field. But God, we also recognize that there is a big thing going on, that we can have an impact in our world when we give ourselves wholeheartedly to what you call us to be. So empower us, Lord. Enable us. Give us your spirit so that we may be able to go all in and make a difference where people can be saved. We ask for this grace. We ask for this help in Jesus' name. Amen.